Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and he will be, and, he, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And now verses 22 to 27. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Real people in the flesh. Real people. What a joy. You know, over the past six months, I've had to retrain myself to speak directly only to a camera. Um, so used to looking everywhere, and now, now I'm having to retrain myself to look to the camera lots, because there's many of you at home right now. And of course, now I've got to do this. So who knows? I'm all over the map. I still am not allowed to wander very far for camera stuff. So I'm getting used to, it's just constantly learning. That's what COVID is all about, right? Well, I can't tell you how excited I am that we're finally at this day. As you know, we, we began this Ask Anything series back, uh, what did we put the questions on, in July, I think it was. Uh, then you voted on them all. And uh, your most popular question that you asked, uh, and almost, the, I think it was the second most popular voted on, had to do with death, the afterlife, and questions about heaven. So here's the kind of grouping of questions. You asked a lot of them. So here's what you gave me. Where is heaven? Is it a physical place? How do we get there? Where does the Christian go immediately after death? That's a common question I get. What about people who have never had a chance to hear about Christ? How can heaven be this wonderful place without our unsaved family members? And when is Christ coming? 
On that last one, uh, I have a book that I've written I'm about to release. If you just, it's my argument that, you know, January 16th, 2023 is when Christ's returning. Take Donald Trump's name, convert it to Egyptian hieroglyphics, multiply it by the number of disciples. That's how you get that date. So if you'd like to buy my book, uh, it'll be for sale on our, no, I'm just kidding. We are, we'll hit that one up later on, all right? When is Christ coming? Uh, it's very easy. When I, when I saw this was your top questions, I thought this is easy to see why these are your top questions. And the reason is that we all are very curious about what happens after death. We also want to know if a loved one has died, we want to know where are they? Are they safe? Are they happy? And then, of course, I think we're just curious. What is it all like? I mean, what, what's on the other side? We want to know answers to this. Even as Christians, we have this. So let, let me just give you one author who writes about a common Christian understanding. He says, nearly every Christian I have spoken with has some idea that eternity is an unending church service. We have settled on an image of, a, of the never-ending sing-along in the sky, one great hymn after another, forever and ever, amen. And our heart sinks, forever and ever, that's it? That's the good news? And then we sigh and feel guilty that we are not more spiritual, we lose heart, and we turn once more to the present to find what life we can. So whether you are just looking into Christianity today, maybe tuning in for our live stream for the very first time, uh, or maybe you're a long-time Christian, I think these questions matter. They're very important, so I'm going to do my best to tackle them this morning. You can see there's a lot of questions. This is not going to be short. I won't take you over lunchtime, don't worry, but we're going to dig into some good stuff today. Now, before we get going, I thought it's probably best for me just to lay the table. I want us to be clear on what people already believe about this before we seek to say, what does the Bible answer? So here's the first question I just want to ask. What does the average person believe about death and heaven? Let's begin with our kind of average secular person in our culture. I think the average secular person in our culture believes the souls of all good people, the souls of all good people will go to heaven when they die. Just an average, not saying it's necessarily yours, but that's probably the average secular person's view. So heaven, for the average secular person, is usually viewed as this far-off place. We don't really know where it is or anything, uh, but we, we go there and we get to do what we love forever. So I don't know if you remember back in spring, um, a famous, one of the most famous basketball players of all time, Kobe Bryant, he died in a helicopter crash. It was all over the news. At his memorial service, the famous people that were there got up and one after another, they, they gave this kind of view of heaven. And, and so they said things like, to comfort themselves, they'd say, Kobe is now up in heaven playing basketball uh, with all the basketball greats who've gone before him. The average Christian, I think, takes a similar but different view. The average Christian is going to quickly say, no, no one is good enough to get into heaven. Everyone is a sinner. Everyone must believe in Jesus Christ in order to go to heaven. But the average Christian would say, heaven is also, it's a spiritual realm. It's where God lives, and that when we die, our bodies are buried into the earth, and our souls then leave this earth, and they go to heaven to be with God forever. So I think the average Christian would say that the, what matters is not so much your body, your physical body. What matters is your soul, because your body's temporary. It's going to die. It's going to go into the earth. What matters is your soul. Your soul is eternal, and so you need to care about your soul above all things. And so, for instance, you might be at a graveside and a pastor might say something like, pointing at the coffin, 
the real John is not here. This is just a shell pointing to the body. The real John is with God in heaven. His soul is with God in heaven. And the follow-up of that would say that the average Christian would say what matters is not earth but heaven. Earth, eventually God, the Scriptures, they're going to say God's going to burn it all up. It's all going to destroy it. What matters is us getting to heaven so that we're not a part of all that. And then we'll quote the famous hymn saying, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. So to summarize it, I'd say this. The average Christian believes the great hope of Christianity is that the souls of all who believe in Jesus will go to heaven when they die. I've chosen those words carefully. So talk to the average person. The great hope, the big thing that we want to talk about and look forward to is make sure you believe in Christ, get your sins forgiven, so that when you die and your body's buried, your soul gets to go to be with God forever in heaven. Now, this morning I want to say to you that that belief is not entirely wrong. It's just not entirely right. It's not that it's totally misguided. It's just not complete. It's very, very incomplete is what I want to show you this morning. In fact, I'll put it like this. It's like thinking the appetizer is the main course when Christmas dinner is still yet to come. It's a great appetizer, but it's not the great hope. It's a hope, it's a little hope, but it's not the great hope of the Christian faith that Christ has won for us. Now, does any of that surprise you? Are you sitting there saying, I always thought the gospel message and the great hope of Christianity was believe in Jesus so I can go to heaven when I die. Where is, is Barton gone off the rails? What kind of weird stuff are we talking about this morning? Well, here's what I want to show you today, that although this is a limited view, it is a correct view, but here, here's the big deal. The great hope of Christianity is way bigger than this. The great hope of Christianity is way better than this. I think you'll recognize it when I bring it, but there's some category mistakes, and I can see it even in the questions that you've asked. There's some category mistakes that I hope to give you some further insight into the Scriptures so that by the end of this morning, you're saying, oh, that's a Christmas dinner. Oh, that's delicious. The appetizer's great. Oh, but Christmas dinner is so much better. So, the best way, I think, to answer your questions this morning is for all of us to kind of just take a step back from the questions themselves and for us to relook at the Bible's big story. God's big plan for the universe. I want to retell that story right from the beginning all the way to the end. And I think that as we do it, you'll begin to see, okay, here's maybe where I've made a little mistakes along the way. I've, I've got this right but not totally right view. And by the end, I'm hoping that you're going to say, wow, what a great hope that we have that Christ has won for us. So here's the first question I want to ask, and we'll spend a good chunk of time on this. What is God's big plan for his universe? We're going to take a bit of time on this, so dig in. This is the hardcore teaching part. Here's the question. Uh, well, actually, no, let's, let's go to the next slide. Here's the first thing I want to say. Big picture in the Bible. When the Bible uses the word heaven, generally speaking, it's talking about what we might say is God's space, where God says, heaven is my throne. Earth, we could rightly say, is our space. Heaven's God's space, earth our space. Not 
We could pick some holes in that, but generally speaking, that is how the Bible wants to use those terms. So when you read the Bible on the very first page, you get to see in Genesis chapter 1 that Genesis celebrates how God has made the earth as a home for human beings. And what a wonderful home it is, isn't it? It is our home, contrary to the hymn. It is our home. God made it for us. It's the place that he has made for us to enjoy. Also, contrary to many common views, God did not create souls that kind of migrate around and float around on the earth. No. To be human is to be body and soul. Read Genesis 1 and 2. It's very clear. To be a human being is not, the essence of you is not just your soul. The essence of a human being is body and soul. God creates a body and he breathes into it the breath of life. So a human being is an embodied soul, an embodied soul. You are body and soul. You cannot divide these things and say one is more important than the other or that your body doesn't really matter. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. And then God at the end of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 says that all of this, this physical world that's our home, our physical bodies with our souls, all of this God says is good. Now here's the key point. In Genesis 1 and 2, we get an overlap of heaven and earth in the Garden of Eden. Because what's going on in the Garden of Eden is that God walks and talks with Adam and Eve, right? So God's presence, heaven is on earth, if you want to put it that way. Because God himself comes to walk and to talk with Adam and Eve within the Garden of Eden. They're not separate from each other, heaven and earth. They're united, But then if you track the story, when you get to Genesis 3, if you know your Bible, you know everything goes wrong. Everything falls apart in Genesis chapter 3 when humans rebel against God. The Bible calls this sin, and all kinds of bad stuff happens as a result. Human beings become separated from God. Adam and Eve, the big point is they're driven out of God's presence. So now our image begins to look a little bit more like this. Heaven, God's space, is now separated from earth, which is our space. As you see with God, casting them out of the garden. And no longer in the book of Genesis does God walk and talk with human beings anymore. There is a separation. The holy God cannot dwell with sinful human beings. And so, they are cast out of his presence. On top of all this, humanity falls under judgment. Human death enters the world. And Romans 8 even says that creation itself begins to suffer. Creation itself groans. When we fell, we took creation down with us. So creation now groans because it does not work the way it is supposed to. The earth is our home, but like an old home that is falling apart, it does not work the way that it is supposed to. So take that in. Now here's the big question which we need to ask. At this point in the story, Genesis 3, What will God do about all this? He creates this great planet for people, creates human beings. What will he do about all this rebellion, this evil, this death? What is he going to do about it all? Most Christians, I think, take the view that God's plan of salvation is to find a way through Christ to evacuate our souls from the earth and to take us to heaven while everything down on earth eventually burns. It's very odd to me, and I could trace this historically why we get this, but we don't have time for that today. It's odd to me why Christians think this, 
Because this is not the main story of the Bible. The main story of the Bible actually teaches the opposite. Let me give you my thesis, and then we're going to track it through the story. What's the big plan, God's big plan for his universe? The story of the Bible is that heaven and earth were once united, that sin broke this union, but through Jesus Christ, God is working everything toward reuniting heaven and earth, toward reuniting them. God aims to restore what was lost in Eden so that God will once again dwell with his people on the earth that he created for them. That's what I want to show you this morning and a whole bunch of more really great stuff. So let's come back to the story now. And that plan all begins to take shape in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel and specifically with what we call the tabernacle and the temple. So track with me. This is really important stuff. It's all going to come together in a few minutes. In the Old Testament, God commands Israel to build, first of all, a tabernacle. You know what a tabernacle is probably? It's basically a portable temple. It's a giant tent, uh, a portable temple that Israel took with them as they went through the wilderness. Then once they're in to the, the land of Canaan, they build themselves a temple. There's a few versions of this, so it's a permanent structure, but they're both basically the same thing, a tabernacle or a temple. Now, here's my question for you. What is a tabernacle or a temple? What is it? Isn't it God dwelling with his people? That's, that's the purpose of a tabernacle. That was the purpose of the temple, is that God is now dwelling with the nation of Israel in the tabernacle or the temple. So really you could say it's heaven coming down to earth. And we'll track this one day. I got a great series one day that I want to do with you to show you that the tabernacle and the temple are meant to recall the Garden of Eden. Everything in them, the way they're decorated, everything is meant to make you think of the Garden of Eden when God dwelled with his people there. But most importantly, God's presence comes down and it comes and his special presence is in, what's that room called? Do you remember it? The Holy of Holies, the back room in the tabernacle, the back room in the temple. God's presence specially dwelled there. Israel set up their tents around the tabernacle so that God was dwelling with his people. So we could put it like this. In the temple or the tabernacle, heaven and earth are once again overlapping. This is the one place in the world, in ancient Israel, where God's presence was once again dwelling with people. The farther you get away from the temple, you're moving farther and farther away from God's presence. The Holy of Holies is where God's presence dwelled. At the temple, God dwelled among his people like he did in Eden. But it's not fully like Eden, is it? I mean, the average Israelite can't just walk into the doors of the temple, see, I'm going to talk with God right now, walk in through the back, through the veil. You can't do that. Because human beings are sinful, you cannot walk into the presence of the most holy God because you're sinful and you will be destroyed. So the big question for Israel was, how can the holy God dwell among his people in the tabernacle? How can we have tents around him? Won't we be destroyed if we try to come near this holy God? How can we do this? How can God dwell among people? The answer to that was animal sacrifice. So an Israelite would bring an animal, the animal would be sacrificed, 
And the idea there was that your sins were transferred to the animal, and the animal then dies in your place so that you are cleansed of your sins, and Israel as a nation can now have God dwelling among them as long as their sins have been cleansed. This is the whole point of the animal sacrifice. So now here's the big question, though. People sin a lot. How many animals are you going to need to sacrifice? And, and just, this is just the nation of Israel. What about the whole earth? How could heaven ever fully unite with earth when our sin is so great and all the animals in the world cannot cover all of our sin? Right here, we come to the big point of the story. Keep tracking with me right now. The big point of the story is Jesus. That God's going to work out all this plan through his son, Jesus. Once again, notice, the movement is not from earth up to heaven. The movement is from heaven down to earth. Jesus, listen to this, Jesus is heaven come down to earth. Because Jesus is God in human flesh. Jesus is God himself dwelling on the earth. Listen to what John 1.14 says. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That word dwelling literally means, you get this? His tabernacle. God becomes a man and he made his tabernacle amongst us. In other words, Jesus is God's temple. Jesus is the presence of God because Jesus is God himself. He's God dwelling amongst us. But Jesus isn't just the temple. Mark this. Jesus is also the sacrifice. As John the Baptist said to Jesus, of Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What, John? One sacrifice can take away the sin? There's been millions of animal slaughter. You're saying one sacrifice can do that? That's right. And the sacrifice is, the lamb is a person, not, not an actual animal, a person? Correct. This one man's sacrifice can take away these sins. So the good news of the Bible then is that anyone who comes to Jesus can come into the presence of God. This is where heaven and earth truly overlap so that now the picture looks like this. Heaven and earth overlap at the cross. In other words, through Jesus Christ and through him alone, you can be cleansed, you can be dwelling with God, you can be welcomed into God's presence. But of course, the story does not end there. God raises Jesus from the dead, and the resurrection of Jesus was the launching of God's new and future world. So let me put it to you this way. The early Christians in the New Testament, their great hope was not to go to heaven when they died. That was a hope. Their great hope was the second coming of Jesus Christ. Their great hope was the second coming because at the second coming, Christ will raise all his people from the dead, give them resurrection bodies, banish evil and death from his creation, destroy all that is evil, renew the, new, the earth so that it is a new earth and God will dwell with his people again on the new earth. So that is the great hope. This is, this, this is very different. Do you see how this is different from the story we saw earlier? I think probably the pieces are coming together for you now. But do you see how it's very different? It's not God evacuating us from the earth to live in a far-off heaven. 
No, rather, on the very last page of the Bible, we read again, the movement is heaven coming down to earth, God fixing everything. As we come to the last page of the Bible, God's city called the Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven to a renewed earth. And let me just bring this all together. If I've lost you along the way, track right now. This is the little gold. When the new Jerusalem comes down, what shape is the city? If you can answer that, you'll trace the entire thread of the whole Bible story and everything will come together. What shape is the new Jerusalem? Well, here's what we read in Revelation 21, 16. Its length and width and height are equal, which makes it a cube. It's a perfect cube. Its length and width and height are equal. So Revelation 21 says, this is what's going to be happening. The new it's a picture. The new Jerusalem, heaven coming down, is a perfect cube. Now here's the question. What else in the Bible is the shape of a perfect cube? It's a structure. It's a structure in the Old Testament. What do you think it is? 1 Kings 6.20 says of the holy of holies, it was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. The holy of holies, which God commanded the dimensions to be built on, is a perfect cube. So Revelation 21 then is bringing the whole story of the Bible together. And what it's saying is the new earth doesn't need a temple because everything is the temple. Because God himself will dwell with his people again. Because heaven has come down to earth. It's not limited, overlapping just in a, in a tabernacle or a temple. The whole new earth is now a temple because God will once again dwell with his people. So here we could summarize the message of the Bible like this. That God is working all things to the day when heaven will fully reunite with a new earth. Isn't this how the last two pages describe it as we read? Let's read it again. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now everything that comes right here, this is the great conclusion to the story. So this is really, really important. How does the story end? Oh, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And as a result of that, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Isn't that good? So to put it all together then, heaven and earth were once united. Our sin broke that union. But through Jesus Christ, God is working all things to the day when he will fully unite heaven and earth again. Eden will be restored. God will dwell with people again. That is the big story the big plan that God has for his universe. All right, let's all take a breath. That was a lot of teaching. 
Let it soak in for a moment. Maybe there's some things you're thinking on. You got some questions. I want to give you that because I want to give you new categories to think in. Now that we've got all that said, let's directly answer one of your first questions, and it is this. Where does a Christian go immediately after death? That's an important question, not just for curiosity's sake, but for hope and encouragement. I remember once uh, I was standing in a room, in a funeral home, small room. There's about 15 people standing there with me. And two, just beside me was an open coffin, and we were viewing the body of a man from my church, a Christian man named Soren. And Soren had passed away, and he had left, uh, he'd passed away in his 50s, actually, of cancer, a giant of a man. He was the first man I baptized. He was like 6'7", 320 pounds. And man, even me, I would be like, use the legs, use the legs. A giant of a man, but sadly passed away of cancer in his 50s, leaving his wife and his teenage son. So I'm standing there with about 15 other people, and his wife looks at me and in front of the whole room says to me, Pastor Barton, where is Soren right now? She's not asking that question purely out of intellectual curiosity, is she? She's asking it because she needs comfort. She needs hope. And you and I have to be able to answer that question as well because we will have times when we need that comfort and hope for ourselves and for loved ones who are believers who also pass away. So what happens to a Christian immediately after death? The easiest way to answer this is to look at Jesus' death itself. For Jesus is our pattern. He goes before us. We follow in his footsteps. So here's the question for you. Where did Jesus go when he died? Well, what did he say to the thief on the cross? He said these words, today you will be with me in paradise. Another word for heaven, in God's space, if you will. Today you will be with me in paradise. So to be clear, it would be very accurate to say Jesus died and went to heaven. That's what happened when he died. In the same way, when a Christian dies, they go to heaven. They go to be with God. So this is what I said to Soren's wife in front of everybody. I just remembered a good thing. I had some Bible memory going on in my mind because I had no time to think. And I just quoted Paul's words where Paul says this, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. What a hope to a widow standing there where is my husband? Your husband right now, we can say on the authority of Scripture, your husband is with the Lord. What hope that is to a grieving widow and a teenage son. Now, I think at this point, most Christians understand this. I think most Christians get this at this point. But now let me ask you this. Is it the end of the story to say that Jesus died and went to heaven? Is that the end? I hope you don't say yes. No, that's, that's, it's, it's not that it's wrong. It's just what? It's incomplete. It's, it's actually missing the big event. It's, it's very true. It's very important. But it's missing the big thing, the big event, which was his resurrection. That God on the third day raised Jesus from the dead. So listen very carefully to me right now. Yes, it is true. Going to heaven when you die is a hope of the Christian. It is part of our hope, but it is not the great hope. Going to heaven when he died for Jesus was a temporary thing. It was a pit stop along the way to the finish line. 
It was the appetizer before the Christmas dinner. And in the exact same manner, this is true for a Christian. When a Christian dies, we go to heaven to be with God, but it's merely a pit stop. Oh, yes, it's a joyful pit stop. Of course it is. As Paul says these words, he says, to depart, that is to die right now, and to be with Christ, it's far better. That's glorious. It's wonderful. But here's the big shift in, the thinking, in your thinking I am trying to make, that even though believers are filled with joy, even though it is a part of our hope to die and to go to heaven to be with Christ right now, that is not the great hope. It's part of the hope. It's not the great hope. Because listen, even the believers in heaven right now, their experience is incomplete. It's the best word I can find. I don't want to minimize the joy that they have in heaven because they have joy in the presence of Christ. But their experience is also incomplete. Let's just think of one clear way it's incomplete. Their bodies still lay under the ground. In other words, death still has a partial victory over them. Because to be human is to be body and soul, not just souls. And very clearly, Paul in Romans 15, he wants to make this argument. He wants to say the resurrection body like Jesus is critical to our great hope. Right now, our, our fellow brothers and sisters who've gone and are with Christ, they do not have their resurrection bodies. So oftentimes at funerals, I'll hear Christians say like, they're up in heaven in their new bodies, dancing around, and I'm thinking... I don't want to burst your bubble, but they don't actually have the resurrection body yet. 1 Corinthians 15 makes it very clear for us. When do we get our resurrection bodies? At the second coming of Jesus Christ. When Christ returns, what happens is he raises the dead, he transforms our bodies to be like his resurrection body, and not until that day, Paul says, does the saying come true, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Because right now, death has a measure of victory. Because our bodies, our, our body, the true you, in a sense, has been split. The soul is in heaven. The body is in the grave. So death has a partial victory. But oh, no, no, no. God will not give death victory. The great hope is that one day God will unite the souls and bodies of each, per, each one of his blood-bought people. The great hope is that death will have no victory so that on that day when we're in our resurrection, immortal, powerful bodies, we look death in the face and we mock death saying, where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Look at this body that Christ won for me. It is a resurrection body of power. It's immortal. It cannot die who on you, death, is what we're going to That's basically what Paul's doing at the ends of 1 Corinthians 15. He's, he's dancing on it. He's mocking it. Na, 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 death. You got nothing. That is the great hope of Christianity. So to be crystal clear, lest there be any misunderstanding, when a Christian dies, their soul goes to heaven. That's wonderful. But the Bible hardly ever talks about that. I, I quoted you almost everything the Bible says about this state of what believers have right now. There's very little said. Why? Because it's only an appetizer. Christmas dinner is still coming. It's only a pit stop before the big finish, the Bible's entire focus. And this is everywhere through the New Testament. Endless chapters talking about it, like 1 Corinthians 15. 
the great focus of the Bible is on the second coming of Jesus Christ and all that is going to happen on that day. So when we're at funerals, we should be rejoicing that so-and-so has passed away and with Jesus right now. And at the same time, we should be saying, come Lord Jesus. We want the resurrection of the dead. We want a world where there is no death. We want a world where there are no funerals. We want a world where there's no evil at all. Come Lord Jesus and fulfill our great hope. It's that dual focus. That is exactly what Peter writes when he says these words. He says, according to his promise, we are waiting for, to be evacuated from this earth, to live with God forever? Oh, no. According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So I hope that answers that question directly for you and brings some clarity for you. But now, as I turn to your next question, I'm going to reframe it because I've given you new categories now. When you ask, is heaven a physical place? How do you get to heaven? I think actually what you're really trying to ask is this. What will our final state be like? Our final state, when it's all said and done, what will our final state be like? And now what I'm, try- what I'm hoping you've seen this morning is that's a new heaven and a new earth. So what will our final state be like in the new heaven and the new earth? On one level, we just don't know. Think about it this way. Imagine you could have a conversation with a baby in a womb. The baby could talk and you could have a conversation. How would you explain what this world is like? If the baby said to you, you know, I've heard there's a great world out there. This world in here is great. It's super warm. Everything's provided for me. It's kind of red all the time. It's a little dark, but it's a great spot. Uh, tell me, I've heard about this world beyond. What is it like? How would you explain to that baby what it's like to breathe, let alone breathe in now that we've got clean air again, a crisp morning on a fall day? How do you explain that? How would you explain to that baby what is it like to walk right now in fall when leaves are falling and you hear the crunch under your shoe as you step on a leaf and kids kick them? How do you explain that to somebody in a womb? How would you explain what color looks like? How how would you explain watching a sunset? How would you explain the vastness of space? It's like 20 wombs times 20. How do you explain that to a baby? So on one level, we we cannot know what it's going to be like. But this is where I think Christians sometimes emphasize that too much. There is a sense that we can know. Because the Bible does not just say, One day God is going to take you to a place that's so great, you'll just say, wow, it's the best. That's not what it says. It uses language we can understand. So as we read, it calls it a new heaven and a new earth. The Bible uses the language that we can understand to grasp a little bit about what it will be like. So it's described as the earth, and yet it's new. So there's continuity but there's discontinuity between the, between the two. In some way, it's still the earth, and yet in some way, it's new. So, is it physical? Yes and no? I mean, here, here's my best guess at it is we'll have resurrection bodies. We, are, we, we will be bodily raised from the dead. We will not be ghosts and spirits floating around in an eternity in a heaven far away. That's clearly not the vision of the New Testament. We're bodily raised just like Christ and Christ's resurrection body, even before it was glorified, he could be touched, he could eat fish, and yet he could walk through walls. That's pretty cool. So is it physical? It seems like it's physical, but it's more than physical. 
That's as far as my mind can understand what I think the scriptures are saying. Whatever it is, though, it is the fulfillment of all our desires, the greatness of this earth times so much more so that we say, yes, this is what we tasted in this world. This is the thing we've been longing for. One of my best examples of this that just kind of fills me with joy is when I read my kids or when I've read the Chronicles of Narnia series and the children for seven books, they're going through all these adventures. And in the last book on some of the last pages, they get to enter into a new Narnia. Aslan recreates Narnia and it's a new Narnia, clearly picturing the new heavens and the new earth. And then we read this. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forefoot on the ground and neighed and then cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Bree hee hee. <laughs> he says, come further up, come further in. Come into the new Narnia. Discover all the joys that Aslan has created for you. So when my kids ask me, Dad, what's the new heavens and the new earth going to be like? I think the best way to answer that question is to say, what do you love about life on this earth? My kids will say things like, wow, we love going on roller coasters. We love going to the beach. We love hanging out with our friends. I say, great. Whatever the new earth is like, here's the one thing we can guarantee. It will not be less than this earth. And this earth has some pretty amazing stuff. If you took away all the violence, all the terrible stuff out of our world, it would be pretty incredible. And the new earth is this and then so much more, the part that we don't fully understand. So this is where I think it's okay to use a little bit of sanctified imagination. Start with this earth and then move beyond. I mean, what if the new earth is 10 times the size of this earth? 10 more Grand Canyons, 10 more Alps, 10 times the size. What, what if the new heavens and new earth, what if it's a hundred-dimensional world? What if there's 50 primary colors? What if on the new earth, the most amateur musician learns everything that Beethoven ever wrote in their very first week of music lessons? What kind of music will we be creating after two million years of creativity? Use your imagination a little bit. I mean, what if God gives us a million years to build up giant civilizations and amazing things on this new earth, and then he gathers us all around. He says, okay, guys, I got something new for you today. Uh, I actually had cr I've created 900 trillion other galaxies, and today I'm going to teach you how to teleport. All those galaxies are filled with planets and creatures, and I want you to go discover them and meet them, and they're going to tell you new glories that I have created that you haven't even experienced yet. I don't know if any of that's true, but this is where we begin. Begin with a, this earth is great and everything beyond it is what Christ is going to give us. But whatever all of that is, our chief joy, what will heaven be like? Our chief joy will be being with our creator again. You know, a bride has great joy in her flowers, in her dress, in her friends, but those are not her greatest joy. Her greatest joy is in her groom. And as we read earlier, 
God, the heavenly city, comes down out of heaven, adorned like a bride for her husband, so also in the future new heavens and new earth. We will have many, many joys, many flowers, many wedding dresses. We are called the bride of Christ after all. But our chief joy will be in our groom, Jesus Christ. That's why Augustine wrote these famous words in the fourth century. He said, he shall be the end of our desires, who shall be contemplated without ceasing, loved without ending, and praised without weariness. It's why in the 17th century, another author named Samuel Rutherford put it like this. He said, oh, my Lord Jesus Christ, if I could be in heaven without you, it would be a hell. And if I could be in hell and yet have you still, it would be a heaven to me, for you are all the heaven I want. Or as John Milton put it, your presence makes paradise, and where you are is heaven. So that brings us to our final question and a couple sub-questions under it. How do you get to heaven? More accurately, I think we're going to say it this way. How can you get to the new heaven and new earth that God is moving all things toward? Remember, modern secular people, maybe you're watching today and you're saying, uh, I'm, I'm not a Christian, I'm looking into Christianity. The average person in our culture would say, if you're a good person, you'll get there eventually. But listen, as we've seen today, our great problem is our sin. We need to be cleansed of our sin if we're ever going to enter into the presence of the holy God. And listen, the good news of Christianity is God sent his son into the world to die for those sins that you and that I might be cleansed of them, that we might be put right with God. Everything we've talked about today, it's all been won for you through the death of Jesus Christ, and you get it all for free. There is no cost to you. The cost is to come and just to bow the knee to Jesus saying, forgive me of my sins. Make me right with you. I want all those things you're talking about. I want you. Forgive me and cleanse me. Have you asked him to do that? Don't wait another hour. There's a flip side to all of this that we didn't know. You didn't ask the questions about, but there's, of course, another side to all this which we read. That's not the place where you want to be. Christ has won all of this. Don't wait another hour to bow the knee and ask him to save you. But you asked, how can it be filled with joy if our family members who don't love Christ are not there? The Bible never directly answers this, but it does indirectly, for it does say that we'll have the mind of Christ. So evidently, somehow, I don't know how, we will not be troubled by this, for there is no tears, there is no mourning. So our minds will come, somehow be synced, we will think like God, and somehow this question will not trouble us. I don't know how in this life to understand that. I trust simply that in the next, it will be okay. You say, but what about those who've not heard about Jesus? A couple of very quick things there. First of all, Romans 2 says, we will all be judged according to the amount of light or knowledge we have been given. In other words, for people living here in Canada who have literally unlimited ability to find out what the gospel is and learn about Christ through the internet, through churches, whatever, they will be judged more strictly than those who do not have those resources and have not heard. So we are judged, first of all, on the basis of the light that we have been given. But secondly, the Scriptures are clear, we must believe on Jesus Christ in order to be saved. And third, I think this for me is the one that just settles it. 
that God is just, and however he works all of that out, no one will accuse him of being unjust. On that great day, whatever happens, we will stand back and say, that is fair and that is just. And in this life, we simply need to rest in that. But here's the real question. I got to be honest, when people give this question, I actually think the whole thing should be flipped. I find that this is an intellectual question that people like to ask, but here's the first thing that should be said back in return. Okay, let's not talk about those who've not heard. You have heard. Have you responded to Jesus Christ? You can't go making excuses about those who've not heard. You have heard. Have you bowed the knee to him and asked him? And if you have, then the next thing to say is, well, then don't waste your time spending all this time worrying about people who've never heard. Do something about it so that they can hear. I mean, do you pray for global missions? Do you give toward global missions? And maybe even today, maybe this message could inspire some of you to say, I've been deeply concerned about that question. I'm going to give my life to go and to make sure they do hear about the great saving news of Jesus Christ. So let's never use that question as a way to evade responsibility or to evade for our own souls or to be part of the cause of global missions. What a joy here at Central to have so many missionaries and realize every dollar you give, some of that goes to our global missionaries to see the name of Christ proclaimed to the very ends of the earth. When will Christ return? You can read my book. <laughs> no, there's no book. Just, I'm going to get an email this week. So let's just get rid of that one. There's no book. That was all a joke. This one, Jesus simply answers, no man or woman knows the day or the hour. What Jesus does say in Matthew 24 is you should make sure, first of all, that you're right with God. And then secondly, you should go about living your life for his purposes so that if he suddenly surprises you and when he comes, he will find you working and worshiping him. That's how we're to be fine. We're not to be obsessing about endless details about when Christ comes. We know he's coming. We don't know when. Let's get busy and start serving him. So there you have it. That was a lot, wasn't it? But I hope what I have been able to do this morning is to provide some clarity for you on what happens when we die. What happens when we die for the Christian is that we go to be with God in heaven. That is a hope of Christianity, but it's not the great hope. The great hope of Christianity is not to go to heaven when we die. The great hope is the second coming of Jesus Christ when he will raise all his people from the dead. He will judge the world. He will banish all evil, all death, all suffering. He will renew the earth, and God will once again dwell with his people in a renewed earth forever. And so we say, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great hope. Oh, I hope my words have done something to stir up hope in hearts this morning. Father, please take this hope and drive it deep into us, for this hope is what sustains us through all the difficulties of this world. This hope is what strengthens us in our suffering. Lord, take my poor feeble words, which so poorly <laughs> speak of what a marvelous hope we have, and somehow make them real to us. May, may our hearts be excited and be filled with joy over all that you have won for us, Jesus. And so we say, Jesus, you are worthy. 
You are the one who has the authority to move history, to open the scroll and move history to that final point when you will return. So we say, Jesus, you are worthy this morning because with your blood, you purchased men and women for God from every tribe and language and nation and tongue. And so we give you all of our praise and worship, thanking you that all of this hope is free to us, that you have earned it at great cost to yourself. So we give you our worship. We give you our praise, thanking you for this hope that you have given us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.